Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad that you are here and that you can be a part of a recent service at TCC. So let's join the service, which is already underway, and listen to the message. Tonight is week three of our current series on the Pauline Epistles. And we began with an intro to, uh, to Paul and his two letters to Corinth uh, last week. Pastor T did a phenomenal job teaching us about Paul's letter to the Romans, and I knew he'd do a great job, and that's why I strongly suggested that he take on the book of Romans. But uh, if you didn't get to be a part of that uh, service, I encourage you to go to the podcast um, and listen to it or watch on our YouTube channel. It was just awesome. I hope you brought your Bibles. Uh, or your Bible app is ready to open. We're going to be looking at lots of verses, as Brother Forrest can attest. He loves it when I send him thousands of verses to put on slides. But um, I have found personally that writing some of these notes from these overviews that we're doing of books of the Bible, just writing some of these things in, in the margins of my Bible. I have a journaling Bible that gives me the space and the lines to do that in a way that makes my notes legible. But I just find it very helpful when I sit down to read my Bible on my own to quickly be reminded of some of those things that I gleaned from forums like this. And I just encourage you to do the same. And so tonight, we make haste to consider not one, not two, not three, but four of Paul's letters, brief letters, um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Now, to be clear, there is no reason why we are doing all four together other than, in my mind, as a former Bible quizzer, they all go together because I learned them together but because they're uh, brief, for the most part, they say a lot in a few chapters, but each book is unique, and I think that that will be represented in what um, I have felt to present to you tonight. Um, but to be clear, you know, this is, I was talking to somebody a couple weeks ago about these overviews that we do at Growth University, and uh, their comment was, you go so fast, and it is true. Because we're trying to honor your time and make the most of, of this forum for you. And so I know our motivation, so that you're aware of, is not to give you, um, you know, an exegetical version of these books. But rather to study it and to give you an overview like you're coming in for a landing at CVG. You know, you can see the landscape and you know, oh, I recognize this and that. Basically, the idea is to give you information that would be meaningful and helpful to you when you read these books of the Bible in your own time. And so, that being said, we believe at TCC that Bible reading should be a part of our daily lives. Amen? It's not enough for uh, you to just hear it be taught twice a week, but, but we hope and pray and encourage you to get into the Word of God in your own time. So let us begin with the book of Galatians. And tonight, we're going to look at these books in the order in which they appear in our Bibles. This is Paul's letter to churches that he started in the region of Galatia. I have a map here because I thought it was so neat 
to see the seven, the locations of the seven churches that Paul wrote letters to. Now, we know he also wrote letters to individuals that we'll get into in a couple weeks, but it's just fascinating to see uh, how spread out these groups of people are that Paul is overseeing and checking on and going to visit as he can. But Paul wrote Galatians between 48 and 50 AD, and some people believe that Paul actually wrote this letter before the Jerusalem council met in Acts 15. Now this is interesting for us because what they met about in Acts 15 is the heart of the issue that Paul's going to address in the book of Galatians. All right? And so the church in Galatia basically faced some of the same pressures that the church in Rome was facing that that Tom taught you last week that there were Judaizers coming into the church, speaking as if they were speaking on Paul's behalf, and encouraging, even demanding, that new converts, i.e. Gentiles, be circumcised in addition to the new birth experience. And so this caused a lot of tension. It caused confusion within that church, and rightfully so. We know what Paul taught Because Dr. Luke was very careful in the book of Acts to make sure that we knew Paul's new convert course, right? Have you been baptized? Have you repented? Have you received the Holy Ghost? And so we know for certain what Paul believed you had to do to be saved. Amen? Amen. And so here, Paul needs to address a major issue that has come up in the congregation, and he is unable to visit Himself, I'm sure that he wanted to. With the heart of a pastor, he heard that some of his flock was being discouraged, was being confused. But to our benefit, Paul wasn't able to go there himself, so instead he wrote a letter. A letter that you and I are able to benefit from, right? Because now we have Paul's incredible insight and teaching in written form, and we are blessed by that and say that, to say, thank God, that not everything that happens to us or doesn't happen to us is outside of God's control. I'm sure that Paul was frustrated, maybe, that he couldn't go, but you and I are recipients of the incredible teaching that he was giving to the Galatians. And so now, this issue of circumcising new believers is the main theme of the book of Galatians. And that could make it very uncomfortable for me to stand up here and teach you on the book of Galatians. I have special memories of my time in the book of Galatians. It was the only time, one of the only times in my quiz career where my dad being my coach didn't serve me well. When I had a question about Galatians, specifically Galatians 3, which is the heart of what I'm going to bring out, um, funny enough. But I remember being in the family room on San Mateo Drive, and I just really, I had trouble learning the verses because I did not understand what I was saying, especially in King James English. And the word circumcision was not one that came up a lot in an all-girl household, okay? So I kind of knew what it meant, but I asked my dad for further explanation on what, why is Paul talking about this? Why is he so upset in Galatians 3? And, and he answered my question, and I was appalled. So I think we all have a basic understanding of what circumcision is, so I am not going to teach you what that is. 
But we understand, hopefully, that it was a fundamental part of the Jewish faith, beginning with the patriarch Abraham. It served as a symbol of the covenant relationship between God and his chosen people. It was very meaningful to the Jews, something that maybe doesn't resonate with you and I, but it represented their spiritual heritage. It was a way that they had always identified themselves with Jehovah for generations. And so Paul understood that he was a Jew. I believe it's in the book of Colossians. He even says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of my life like every good Jew is supposed to be. And yet Paul understood what Jesus had accomplished when he died on the cross. He alone, Jesus alone, fulfilled everything that the Torah had required for sin. His pure sacrifice on Calvary was enough to cover all of sin for all of mankind. And so essentially what Paul is communicating to his readers in this book is you do not have to become a Jew to be a Christian. And we all said amen. Amen. So one thing that is very helpful, I think, when you're reading through uh, these verses is to understand that the climate of that time and place was very anti-Jew. It was very uh, political in that, um, I believe it was Tiberius was, was speaking against the Jews. He was working against the Jews. And so not only are the Jews dealing with issues within their government, pushing up against them and negating their culture and heritage, but now they, they are in the church and they feel that same resistance of what you have doesn't matter anymore. It's not of value anymore. And so for them, it was very personal. It was almost an issue of patriotism, which is something that you and I can identify with. The Jews were, in essence, fighting for their traditions. And so Paul understands both sides of the issue in a way that few people could. And through his approach in this letter, we realize that Paul refused to bring a a political concern into the church. Even as a Jew, he refused to make Jewish nationalism an issue for the church to be imposed upon. You are Christians first, is what Paul writes, and then you're Jews. The heart of this issue was a threat to the peace and the growth of those churches in Galatia. And so Paul's approach is his classic style. He takes the question at hand and he teaches it with such clarity such thoroughness, such depth of understanding that we too can benefit from what he was teaching the Galatians. And it is basically this, that the law served a temporary purpose for God's greater plan for the earth. Abraham, if you read Galatians 3, Abraham is mentioned several times. He is the central figure that Paul uses. And this is also noteworthy because that would have gotten the attention of the Jews, right? He was their founding father, if you will. He was a patriarch. He was a man of faith, greatly esteemed by the Jews. And Paul refers to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and says in Galatians 3, that Abraham believed in the Lord. And the Lord counted it to Abraham 
for righteousness. In Galatians 3 verse 6, Paul makes the incredible point to his, lead, his readers that God called Abraham righteous even before he was circumcised. That's very important to understand. Abraham believed that God would somehow fulfill his promise to make him the father of many nations long before he and Sarah had a child. He believed it. Reality said, we are too old and this sounds nice, but it is impossible. But the Bible is specific to let us know Abraham believed God way before that ever happened. And so let's look at Galatians 3 verses 1 through 9 at Paul's brilliance in explaining this. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit? Pause. They were spirit filled. Don't miss that. By works of the law or by hearing with faith, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's us. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Pause here. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that means it was always part of God's plan from the very beginning to include non-Jews in his family. God is the ultimate planner. Yes, he is. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of of faith. And so here in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is quoting from Genesis when God promises Abraham that he and his family will be a blessing to all nations. How? Through Abraham's family came Jesus Christ. Paul masterfully points out through the scriptures that these Jews held so dear that this promise did not just apply to the Jews. Thank God. All nations were to be blessed through Abraham. All means all. God will have a new multi-ethnic family someday, the scripture's telling us. And for them, it meant anyone can be a Christian. Anyone can become a part of God's family. And so Paul is saying the same faith that saved your father Abraham is what makes salvation possible, not just for the Jews, but for everyone. Paul draws attention to the fact that this was God's promise before circumcision was required by the law given to Moses. And so here we see in conclusion of Galatians. Paul addressing a broader issue for the church and one that I believe all of us can relate to. It's one that's still debated among the church to this day. The roles of both faith and works in the life of a believer. Circumcision is not what made Abraham righteous. It was the faith that he had in God. 
Paul is saying that circumcision was a work required by the law. It was a sign that sealed God's covenant with the Jews. But faith was something that anybody could have. Thank God. Faith is the only requirement. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so Paul challenged his readers now. And I believe that he challenged them then with the idea that we must believe in the work of the Spirit in our lives. To overemphasize anything above the work of the cross is to settle for much less than God's plan for us. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The work of the Spirit is done through you and I and anyone else who comes to Christ by identifying with Jesus' death and his resurrection. And to limit what saves us to a church ritual or some tradition of men would be to settle for man's ways over God's ways. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. That word frustrate means I do not reject it. I do not cast it off. I don't bring it to nothing. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And here's the bottom line for you and I and anybody else that we have the opportunity to tell. We cannot save ourselves. While there is a way to be saved, Jesus made sure we knew he was the way. He was the truth. He is the life. And so when we're sharing our faith with others, this is the simplest, surest way to share it. Jesus can save you. Jesus wants to help you. He's already paid the price to do it, and it is available to you no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done. I thought about my grandma, Pasley, as I was studying. She loved to witness to people, and she would always encourage me to really embrace that and adopt it in my life. And, of course, I was very challenged by it as a teenager. I had a lot of reasons why I couldn't do it, that I wouldn't know what to say, Grandma. I wouldn't know the answers to their questions. And she would always say, Honey, just talk about Jesus. Because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. That's all people need to know is who Jesus is. Because the truth is sometimes the tenets of our faith become a distraction to people. They're concerned with things that really they don't need to be concerned about at the moment. They even distract us sometimes because we overwhelm ourselves with, well, what if they ask about this? What if they don't agree with this? Nothing really matters to begin with except that Jesus wants to save them. Amen. And so Abraham was counted righteous in God's eyes because he believed in the promises of God. And he didn't just believe in God, he obeyed God. Because faith requires obedience. Does anybody remember what happened with Isaac? It wasn't just enough for Abraham to believe in God's promises, but he had to act on that obedience. He had to demonstrate his faith with Isaac. Obedience is a result of faith. Faith is just the starting block. That's what we need to know. Our works do not save us. 
We'll never do enough to justify what Jesus did for us on the cross. We'll never be great enough for him to feel like, man, you earned it. I'm so glad I died for you. But Paul actually says in the book of Romans, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Now let us journey to the city of Ephesus. Paul wrote this next letter to the church there around 62 AD during his imprisonment in Rome. And it's likely that this letter would have been circulated among many house churches. It was delivered by a man named Tychicus, who you will hear about a couple more times in this series. A man who Paul describes in chapter 6, verse 21, as the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. So more than likely, Tychicus was the one that took the letter to the different house churches, maybe read it to them, make sure they understood it, and moved on. He was the messenger. But this is what is, is very important, I think, for you to understand, is that Ephesus was a wealthy influential port city in what is now modern-day Turkey. Have you ever wondered where all these places are in the modern world? I know I have. And the Ephesians were known as a deeply superstitious people, kind of like the Corinthians, only probably greater. This was a very, the city of Ephesus was a spiritual hub, if you will, for pagan worship. And Luke actually makes reference to this fact when he records Paul's trip there in Acts 19. In Acts 19.34, he actually writes that the people of the city shouted for over two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. She was a god. She was a deity. And so that cult of Artemis, or Diana, was a strong influence in the city of Ephesus. In fact, it was the same cult that built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world uh, here on the screen, the Temple of Artemis. Now, this is actually twice the size of the Parthenon in Rome. You cannot imagine. If you look up the, the specs on this, what it was made of, it's absolutely incredible. But it would have been a v very formidable structure in the middle of the city of Ephesus. And so this is significant for us when we look at Ephesians because it is in this book that Paul gives us one of the most extensive teachings on spiritual warfare. In chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, Paul says to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I can guarantee you that type of verbiage got the attention of people who lived in Ephesus. Jeremy Painter, the author of the book we're using, makes this point. Paul makes it clear here that it is God's purpose for the church to arise and challenge evil spirits that oppress people and vie for power. Mm, do you feel that? I'm telling you, when you do, we do these series, it's like, wow, God, aren't you talking to us right now? Amen. Painter points out that it's very possible that these people who lived in Ephesus were very superstitious that to the point that they were very fearful spiritually. They had been exposed to such darkness 
They had awareness of the spirit realm in a way that people who hadn't grown up in that environment might not have been concerned. And so this could be why Paul emphasized throughout the book of Ephesians Christ's authority in the spirit realm and consequently the church's authority in the spirit realm. The cult of Artemis, also known as Diana to the Romans, would have been a potential threat because of the powerful influence that it had in the city of Ephesus. And so thankfully, Paul teaches at length in Ephesians chapter 6 on the importance of standing strong in the Lord and putting on the whole armor of God. He wanted to make it clear to this group of superstitious spiritual people that we are, in fact, in a spiritual battle, but one that the Spirit of God will equip them to be strong in and will equip them to engage in. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13 say, Finally, be strong in the Lord. Think about who he's talking to. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against an entire city dedicated to the worship of a false God, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul wanted them to know we are equipped through the spirit of God within us to win these battles. That tension that they were feeling in the spirit realm, Paul was assuring them, you are equipped through the spirit of God, through the armor of God, from all that God has made available to you. You are equipped to face these evil spirits and to take authority over these spirits. We are equipped to win and we don't have to live intimidated by the evil that is present in this world. It's so obvious that it's at work. I truly believe that there are people who don't necessarily believe in God that can see that and acknowledge it in our present situation. And we as believers are to take up the armor of God. Paul was saying, you know what? You are right. There is stuff going on. And you should be fearful if you did not have the spirit of God. You do. And so put on the armor of God. Hint, hint, if you're facing evil, if you're feeling wickedness in the environment that you're in, you'd better have on the armor of God to combat it. We can stand firm because every spirit in this world is subject to the God that you and I serve. Amen. And now to Philippians. I find the context to this letter particularly fascinating. Philip was, Philippi was the first church that Paul started in Eastern Europe. It began in Acts 16, uh, and I taught on this last year, with the conversion of a wealthy, influential businesswoman named Lydia. We did that study in purple. I love Lydia. And we know that this church began in her home 
and that it's very probable that she became the pastor of that small congregation when Paul and Silas left the area. But that little house church had now grown into several house churches in that area of Macedonia. And so what's interesting for us to understand is that these churches were relatively poor, Yet Paul is very specific in this letter to acknowledge that they had always supported his ministry. They had been faithful in their giving, and he was so appreciative of it. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is writing this letter from a prison cell in Rome. It's amazing to realize that the main theme of this book is encouragement. Paul is writing to encourage the churches in Philippi from his lowly prison cell. And I think if that's all you knew about the book of Philippians, you could get a lot out of the book of Philippians the next time you read it. Think of verses like, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, written from his prison cell. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything and everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds these powerful words that you and I cling to in times of discouragement, in times of difficulty. Paul is writing them from a very lonely, dark time in his life. It was then that he said, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. It is amazing to understand and realize Paul's example to us. That just because we are in a prison cell does not mean we can speak, we cannot speak life and encouragement and help other people even in the midst of our own personal situation. And so this brings us to our app time. All right. And I want you to consider for a couple minutes with someone near you. Has God ever used you or someone you know to encourage you from their prison cell? All right, so think of a a very difficult time in your life. Maybe somebody you knew they were going through a very difficult time in their life, and yet they were able to encourage you during that time. Let's take a couple minutes quickly. All right, I'm going to let you conclude what you're saying. And we're going to finish off in a unique way with a fly over the book of Colossians. 
And I thought this would be a great opportunity to show you an incredible resource that has been a blessing to our family this year, um, and it is the Bible Project. Anybody heard of that? All right. These are, yes, amen, Andrew. There are uh, 10-minute video clips. You can find them on YouTube on every book in the Bible, and they give you an incredible visual overview breakdown of the history of the book and why it was written and some very powerful truths you can get out of it. We've been using them in family devotions from time to time, and I'm amazed at how much I learn. I'm more amazed at how much my girls learn from these little 10-minute clips. And so I wanted to show you just to let you see it and and hopefully see it for yourself what I'm talking about. One on the book of Colossians, we're not going to do the entire clip, but I've got the first minute is the introduction, just so you can see what it looks like. We pray it works. Yes, Lord. Paul's letter to the Colossians. It was written during one of Paul the Apostle's many imprisonments for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And the letter is addressed to a group of people that Paul had never met who made up a church community that he didn't start. This church in Colossae was started by a co-worker of Paul's named Epaphras, who was actually from that city. And Epaphras had recently visited Paul in prison, and he updated him on how well the Colossians were doing overall, but he also mentioned some of the cultural pressures tempting them to turn away from Jesus. And so Paul wrote this letter to encourage the Colossians to address the issues that Epaphras had raised and then to challenge them to a greater devotion to Jesus. The letter's design and flow of thought are pretty easy to follow. The opening movement focuses on Jesus as the exalted Messiah. Paul then goes on to show how his suffering in prison is for the exalted Jesus. And then he addresses the pressures tempting the Colossians to turn away from Jesus. After this, he explores the new way of life that Jesus' resurrection opened up for them. Okay, cool, right? If you're a visual learner, you just can't stop watching those drawings. I'm like... Totally sucked in. So now I have a three-minute clip, which is essentially what I wanted to share with you. I want you to see it through the Bible Project. So Paul challenges them to live in the present as the kinds of new humans they will one day become. He uses the image of their old humanity, characterized by distorted sexuality and destructive speech. For Christians, that humanity died with Jesus and has been replaced by his own new humanity, which is characterized by mercy and generosity, by forgiveness and love. And this humanity, it transcends the ethnic and social boundary lines of our world to create, in Paul's words, a people where there is no one Greek or Jewish, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, but the Messiah is all and is in all people. Paul then gets really practical, and he shows the Colossians what this new humanity might look like in a first-century Roman household, which was a highly authoritarian institution where the male patriarch held the power of life and death over his wife and children and slaves. Not so in a Christian household. Here, the risen Jesus is the true Lord. And so, in the Lord... The wife allows her husband to become responsible for her. And the husband is subject to Jesus by loving his wife and placing her well-being above his own. In a home where Jesus is Lord, children are not objects but are called to maturity and to respect. And parents are to raise their children with patience and understanding. Christians who are slaves are to honor their human masters 
precisely because they're not the real master. Jesus is. And Christians who have slaves are to understand that this slave is not their property, but rather a fellow member of Jesus's body to be honored and embraced in love. Paul's walking a very fine line here. He is reshaping the most basic Roman institution around Jesus who rules by his self-giving love. And so while he doesn't abolish the household structure outright, the exalted Messiah demands that it be transformed almost beyond the point of recognition for any Mm. Roman living in Colossae. You can see this most clearly in the letter's conclusion. After a request for prayer, Paul applies these instructions about Christian slaves and masters. And we discover that Tychicus is the one carrying and reading this letter to the Colossians. And he's accompanied by a certain Onesimus, who was a former slave to a Colossian Christian named Philemon. And we discover from another letter addressed to Philemon that Onesimus had escaped from his master. It was a crime worthy of imprisonment. But Paul asks the whole church to greet Onesimus as a faithful and beloved brother in the Lord. And then in the letter to Philemon, Paul says that he should receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as a brother. Talk about ending the letter with a punch. So in the letter to the Colossians, Paul is inviting us to see that no part of human existence remains untouched by the loving and liberating rule of the risen Jesus. Our suffering, our temptation to compromise, our moral character, the power dynamics in our homes, all of it must be reexamined and transformed. We are invited to live in the present as if the new creation really arrived when Jesus rose from the dead. And that's what the letter to the Colossians is all about. Pretty cool, right? All right, I'll invite you to stand with me. I think that's amazing. When I watch those videos, I'm like, there's no way I could have gotten all of that out by just sitting here and opening my Bible. I don't know, maybe you could, but for those of us who struggle to concentrate or maybe to understand King James English, resource like that could be an incredible blessing, if anything, to your children and and facilitate a discussion with them. And so tonight I want to... Uh, close with uh, reading a few verses from Colossians for you as our prayer, our dismissal prayer, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 and 5 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.